Well, I don't know how you feel in regards to gospel ministry, and by that I mean just doing everyday gospel living, living as a Christian, telling people the gospel, but it's easy to lose heart doing gospel ministry. Easy. There seems to be no shortage of discouragements. It doesn't take an awful lot for confidence to give way to fear, it seems. Is this your experience? I mean, no matter how much resolve we muster, no, ma no matter how much we psych ourselves up, all it takes is one opinion counter to ours expressed by an unbelieving friend that we love, or one sharp word from a family member shutting us out, one subtle threat from someone on authority or even in a court, or one instance of physical harm and confidence can drain away. It's easy to lose heart telling people the gospel that we long for them to believe. But do you know one of the best ways to make sure that you don't lose heart as a Christian doing the gospel work that God has called you to do? Think about what happens when you die. Think about what happens when you die. Uh, I'm serious about this. You won't lose heart doing gospel work when you let what comes after death give you an eternal perspective on life. That's what Paul is essentially saying here in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10. In the previous passage, he's explained that he doesn't shrink back from or lose heart in gospel ministry despite the suffering that comes with it. That's because he's inwardly renewed day by day through it, and if at some point it, his suffering did end in death, well, there's always the resurrection, was his happy note. Well, here in this passage, he really develops this idea and shows us what it will look like when we are raised from the dead and why it helps us share the gospel today, okay? That's what we're going to do. Looking forward to the future is what makes us most effective in the present, no matter what we face. So let's look at this passage together. And let me break it down into two points. If you're taking notes, point one is fix your eyes on the life to come. That's verses one to four. And live to please God today, verses five to ten. First of all, fix your eyes on the life to come. Well, risk assessments are a big deal nowadays. From bungee jumpers to businesses, everybody needs to demonstrate a sufficient consideration of likelihood of death in order to say that some action is safe. And they say that if some activity may end in death, you don't do it. That's the point of it. Well, Paul's own risk assessment is summarized for us in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 28, when he outlines, based on his activity of sharing the gospel, that death is highly likely for him, right? We'll get to this a little bit later on, but he lists all kinds of things, including stoning, shipwreck, a day, and a, a day and a night in the open sea, and all those different kind of things that we would never, ever wish to experience. But not for one moment is Paul deterred in gospel ministry. Paul is not someone who loses heart doing this gospel work 
uh, when I was growing up, I remember this uh, advert that came on uh, in between the kiddies programs about Weebles. Have you ever heard of Weebles? Do you know that? No, it was a toy. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Have you heard that? I'll not sing it for you. I'll spare that, through you that. But that's basically what Paul is like. He just keeps getting knocked down. And you would think, just stay down. You've surely had enough this time. But no, he gets up and he cracks on with doing the very same ministry that got him in that predicament in the first place. Why? Well, verses 1 to 4 tell us why. Paul doesn't lose heart when suffering in gospel ministry because he knows he has a resurrection body to look forward to when he dies, and that is what he longs for in life. Verse 1, Paul knows that a resurrection body awaits him when he dies. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an everlasting house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, Paul's illustrating this body idea, this resurrection body idea, by comparing two dwellings, a tent and a building. Now, a tent represents the earthly body, and everything about this tent says it's temporary, it's fragile, it's insecure, it's inferior, it's destructible. And anyone who's ever camped out in a tent knows exactly what Paul is saying. Uh, I was a Cub Scout when I was younger, and uh, we went camping regularly. I'll never forget one experience by Lake Windermere. I'll never forget the tent itself. Um, it slept eight boys, apparently. Um, slept was also a generous term to use for it. I remember that this, I don't know how old, I didn't realize how old I was, but this was in the time when they didn't have zips on tent. It was this like cord wound around these eyelets in order to try and pull it closed, and it did not close, I assure you of that. But at the same time, they had this ground sheet that I remember was thoroughly unattached and strangely slippy on the bottom, to the point that in the morning, half the boys woke up outside of the tent. It had slipped that much. The tent itself was called an Icelandic. Guess why? It was freezing, right? Now, everything about this experience, I don't know, I'm no Bear grills. I just longed for home. I just wanted to go home. I wanted a warm bed. I wanted a front door that didn't have a draft. I wanted a house, something substantial, not this temporary thing. And Paul says, that's what I'm saying about this earthly body. There's a heavenly building, a heavenly dwelling to look forward to. And this building that he talks about, this eternal house in heaven, as he says in verse 1, is the glorified body. Now, Paul doesn't really say that or elaborate on it too much. And here's why. Because he's already mentioned it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a significant chunk in there where he talks about a resurrection that's not a bodily resurrection, as if to say, what's the use in that? That's not God's plan. So he doesn't need to say all that here because he's said more before. But he's talking about um, a heavenly dwelling, a resurrection body. Praise God. It, it, it is an upgrade of epic proportions. When you look at verse 1 again, it, it says, it's, it, well, basically, it's indestructible. It's eternal. It's foreverness indicated by its location. It's in heaven. 
its eternality noted in its fabrication. It's not made by human hands. Who's it made by? God's hands. Now, this building represents the glorified body and what awaits us when we die. It's a body like Christ's resurrection body, still physically him, to the point that on a beach with John and the other disciples, he could eat some broiled fish. But it's also new and transformed with new qualities to it. In other words, made fit for the new creation to come. Now, Paul is saying, this is what I know, and the knowledge of this means I don't lose heart in gospel ministry. And Paul is telling us, them and us, so that we know it too. For we know, he says. So do you know what happens when you die? Have you thought about this, believer? And is your understanding of what happens to your body when you die built on common myths or biblical truth? You see, death is not the end. There is a life to come. Heaven itself is not even our final destination. The new creation is. And a floaty, disembodied existence is not our final state. A resurrection body, a real body, is physical like Christ's, transformed like Christ's. Paul's appeal at the very start, if you want to not lose heart, and sharing the gospel with other people. Think about what you're going to get when you die. A new body. Know this. Learn this. Reflect on this because it changes how you live today. In fact, it makes you do what Paul does in verses 2 to 4. In verses 2 to 4, we find Paul longs to be clothed with this resurrection body. So not just knowing about it, but desiring it. You see this in verses 2 and 3. Meanwhile, while he waits this, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. And again, verse 3, we groan and are burdened. So outwardly, he's groaning. Now, there are two kinds of groaning. Uh, there's moaning groaning, uh, like kids asked to do chores. Or there's Roman groaning, as in Romans 8, groaning in anticipation of something better, the kind that creation does, the kind that the Spirit himself does, the kind that we believers do when we know what awaits us in the new heaven and new earth. It's anticipation of something better. That's the kind of groaning Paul has in mind. And inwardly at the same time, we read that he's burdened for this. In other words, he knows that this life is heavy and heaven is on, on his mind because of that. And he desires to be free of his sufferings that he's just finished talking about in chapter 4, but above all, to be with Christ. But there's even more to it than that. You see, verses 3 and 4 shows where Paul sets his heart. As he explains in verse 3, the transformed state is better than this one. To live in the resurrection body, you see, is to be truly clothed not naked. Now, there's debate about what the nakedness refers to, but I take it to mean that those who die before the day of judgment go to heaven, but they await the reuniting of spirit with body. To be in heaven without the body is less than God intends, and God wants us to long for the fullness of the redemption that he's actually won for us. 
It has particular application, of course, back to people in New Testament times in Greece who had this very kind of early Gnostic idea of this separation of matter and spirit. The whole idea of wanting to be in an actual physical state is a terrible thing to consider to them. But Paul says, no, 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 let's not be dictated to, let's not our understanding be informed by our culture, but by God's words. For as verse 4 says, only when mortal is swallowed up by death will we be truly alive. It's like our existence gets, you know, if the, if the tent and the building analogy is an exchange, the nakedness and the clothing analogy is, I guess, an addition, something to put on. It picks up what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And how we all long for that. Do we long then for the resurrection body? Like he does? I mean, those who know what awaits them beyond death, I think long for it to varying degrees, I guess. I mean, in patient, life-changing anticipation, we can actually be those who look forward to the full outworking of God's redemption plan and the personal experience of, of God himself in his presence and minus the suffering. That's definitely something to look forward to. But what do you long for? How often does this kind of longing make it into your, or show itself in your heart's desires? I guess for most of us, the ache for, we ache for a better life here more than we ache for the life to come. I think that's my experience. But for Paul, it's there. It's the new creation. It's where he sets his eyes. Verses, as chapter 4, verse 18, just a little bit there before this passage says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but unseen. I guess for us, if we are not longing often for the new creation, if that's indicated by a lack of prayer for come Lord Jesus, then I guess we need to fight off whatever makes us live only for the present. Paul Tripp has written a great book about this very subject called Forever, and he speaks about the problems that come with something that he calls eternity amnesia, when we forget what's happening after death. And there are many things that he lists, but we must fight to keep forever in view, spend time thinking about it. And even when we suffer, to turn our heads towards the better days to come and live every day with the future in mind, like Paul in these first four verses, know what awaits you. Long for what awaits you. You won't lose heart in the discouragements and the hardships of gospel work when you live with an eternal perspective like this. 
Now, I guess you've heard the saying, surely, that oh, uh, Jimmy was of uh, so heavenly-minded that he was of no earthly use. You heard that kind of saying before? Well, the Apostle Paul says, well, I want you to be so heavenly-minded because that is exactly what makes you of greater earthly use. And that's what I think we find in verses 4 to 10. For Paul's not only telling us to know what comes next, he's telling and to look forward to the future body to come, he's telling us to live to please God today. Verses 5 to 8 show us that Paul lives by faith in what God has promised. In verse 5, he basically says, God has made us for this resurrection existence, and he has promised it. Verse 5 says, God has fashioned us. I think that refers to both the creation and redemption. He's made us for eternal existence. The fullness of his redemption plan is what we anticipate, as the book of Romans tells us. We ache for and groan for and long for our redemption, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 5b tells us that God has guaranteed it indeed by giving us the Holy Spirit as a deposit. Now, what's a deposit? It's a down payment. It's a partial payment that promises full payment. Now, many deposits nowadays just aren't like this. I, I mean, you can ha reserve a 10 grand car for 99 pounds on cinch.com with zero obligation to buy it. You can get your money back. That's not a proper deposit. That's just a hint. But that's not the kind of deposit that God gives us. No, the deposit God gives us is non-refundable because he's given us himself in the person of his spirit. Earlier in this book, in chapter 1, verse 22, uh, Paul said that the Holy Spirit is God's very seal of ownership on us. In chapter 3, verse 18, Paul's explained that the Spirit is the one who is transforming our spirits. And here in verse 5 of chapter 5, he's our guarantee, the assurance of what's to come in this resurrection body when this tent, this mobile home, finally fails. Now, brothers and sisters, we have no reason to doubt this, both because of God's word and God's deposit. And God is committed to anything he commits himself to. He is faithful, generally speaking, to all of his promises. What God says, God will do without fail. Numbers 23, 19, God is not human, that he should lie, like not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That's the kind of certainty that led through the Spirit. Again, the writer of Hebrews to say, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. But it gets better even more specific regarding the promise of bodily redemption. Romans 8, 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, a deposit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, there's the longing again, for our adoption to sonship. What's that? The redemption of our bodies. The full physical experience 
of the saving work of Jesus Christ enjoyed by those, well, to the fullest, better than the best experience you can have in this life. God is committed to this, faithful to you and is promised by his word and by the spirit he has given to live within you. That's incredible. That's why Paul lives the way he lives. We see that in verses six to eight, that Paul lives then by faith in that promise. And confidently so. You could even translate that word confident that's there in verse six and in verse eight as as a kind of bold confidence. So it's not just a kind of inward comfort he's got. It is that, but it's 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 an inward confidence that leads him to be bolder in his ministry. Now, do we start to see why he can be shipwrecked for a couple of days and then gets off, finds some land and says, aha, a person, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. It's incredible. Oh, I just got beat up in Philippi with rods. I'm going to toddle off to Thessalonica. What shall I do? Shall I change my methodology? No, I'm going to do exactly the same. I'm going to pop into that synagogue over there and I'm going to tell them why Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. undeterred, confident, because he's sure of the word of God and the promise of his spirit in him. That's incredible. Therefore, we are always confident. Now, confident that living in the hope of something you cannot see, because we can't, right? We can't see it. We haven't seen it with our eyes. It takes faith, but it's the right thing to do. That's what it means to live by faith, as we see in verse 7. We live by faith, not by sight. But that doesn't take away the confidence. Now, Hebrews 11.1 tells us faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. You act, therefore, on what you believe, whether it's in front of your eyes or not. And that includes the belief that death is not the end. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this sounds to you. I mean, the general cultural theme in this nation is one of evolutionary biology, and that what happens to you in death is no different to what happens to a tree when it dies, compost. You are, because of that, cultural teaching, therefore, more likely to be the kind of person who believes that there is no more beyond this life. And that's what European sailors believed regarding the Atlantic hundreds of years ago. In his book on 2 Corinthians, Kent Hughes tells us about the sign that used to hang from the pillars of the Straits of Gibraltar as sailors were leaving that those straits coming out into the open ocean of the Atlantic, there were signs that hung, ne plus ultra, no more beyond. That's what everyone believed until 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and confirmed, no, actually, there is more beyond. Well, I want to say to you tonight, if you're not a believer, this is what Jesus Christ has confirmed for us. 
A man whose word is so true that even prior to his death, he could say, destroy this temple, this body, and I'll raise it again in three days. And he did. I don't know many people who can do that. Do you? He did to guarantee his word. And according to his word and the experience of those who saw him raised from the dead, this promise of God for a glorified body is ours. We will be like him when we see him as he is. So we needn't be uncertain. We can do what Jesus himself said in John 6, the passage I read at the very start of our service, to believe in the one God sent, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved and have this be the future that is secured for you. If you're interested, talk to us about that. Ask questions. We'd love to speak to you. But we are called to be as certain as Paul in the promises God has made. Even to the point that death is preferred to life. How counterintuitive is that? I mean, I don't know about you, but I prefer life to death. <laughs> and, and we do. And yet, this is Paul's preference. I desire to depart, he says in Philippians, and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So life in this body is not purposeless, even as we wait for something preferred, uh, preferable something better. No, Paul lives with confidence, and that's what informs his gospel ministry. He lives by faith, and so should we. What a challenge that lays down for us, doesn't it? I mean, do we live by faith, or do we live by sight? I mean, we have a tendency to live by sight and live by what's in front of us, but we need to live like what God has said is true because it actually is. It's no less real than the nose on our faces, no less true than the sincerest promise we make. In fact, it's more true. Is life in your resurrection body, in the new creation, your preference to this one? It is better. Better than the smoothest ride in this life. Better than the richest gains in this life. Better than the happiest relationships in this life. Better than the deepest joys in this life is being with Jesus then. It is. And Paul says, it's keeping this in mind. Knowing, longing, and living by faith that helps you live in a way that pleases God. And that's what he says in verses 9 and 10. Paul lives to please the God who judges all. That's Paul's goal in life, verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Paul's goal is to please God. That should be our goal too. And again, in our sinfulness, we have a tendency to live for ourselves according to our own wants and preferences. But Scripture tells us that as redeemed ones of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
Therefore, serve God. Live for him. It's the way to true joy because it's the way that life was meant to be lived. For God is the center of all. Live to please him. And live to please him not just because it's in keeping with your salvation. Live to please him because there is a reward to come on judgment day. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, some of you are like, hold on a minute. Is this talking about salvation by works? No, it's not. It's not. It's definitely not. This is talking about judgment but I guess you could say this is stage two of the judgment. Stage one of the judgment is, if you like, the separation of believers and unbelievers, the separation of the sheep and the goats, as Jesus says. Believers go forward to eternal life, unbelievers to eternal hell. But for believers who advance to, well, this stage two of judgment, it's not whether you are in Christ or not that's considered, but what have you done with Christ? How have you lived in this body as his own with the faith and the knowledge and the gifts that you've been given? Now, on that day, every believer will be rewarded with what's due them for, as it says, the deeds done while in the body, verse 10. Did you know about this? Maybe for some of you, this is even brand new. I mean, sometimes I think this aspect of the judgment gets quite a little airtime because we spend so much time trying to protect, rightly so, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone that we make out at times like the way we live doesn't really matter or doesn't really make much difference. Well, that's not true because when it comes to our eternal reward, how we live every moment of every day matters. Now, this isn't the only time that rewards are mentioned, of course. Paul again mentioned the idea of eternal rewards back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, where he writes that our works or deeds, in other words, will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So I guess you could imagine this big kind of, I don't know, an altar of some kind, if you want to use some Old Testament imagery, and all the things you've ever done, how you've built the good things, I guess, in another passage, talk about building with wood, hay, stubble. That's the bad stuff, the bad deeds. And then the gold and so on, how we build with that. Those are the good deeds placed on the same. The fire acts in a purifying way, burning everything up apart from the goods. And the basis of your reward is based on what's there. Jesus talks about the same thing, of course, in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. 
Revelation 22, 12, Jesus says the same thing. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. Underlining for us that we are saved not to live for ourselves, but for him. Not to do whatever we please, but to do good works that please God. To do them as glad captives of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we looked at earlier in our series. Now, please don't allow the controversial questions to take away from the point of this passage, because I know you've got some. Yes, the idea of rewards means that someone will receive a greater reward to you, but you will be so perfectly holy and happy that there'll be no such thing as envy in the new creation, so everything's going to be just fine. And no, it doesn't mean that your bad deeds are actually subtracted from your good deeds. The gospel doesn't work like an income and expenditure a spreadsheet. Remember, Jesus said that whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name will not lose their rewards. Now, the main point, though, is this. The way you live your life, you ought to live your life in a way that pleases God because it will be judged and it will be evaluated. And based on what you do, there is wonderful, exquisite, eternal rewards. And it will magnify your gratitude even more. That not only do you get to be there, that would be enough for me. But to be invited to come and share the master's joy, receiving the reward that he, by his grace, has, you know, according to my deeds, done for him on this earth. Which, by the way, I can only say, glory to God, I've only done my duty. Because every single one of those good deeds has been empowered and enabled and effectively done by him and his spirit. All praise and glory goes to him in the end. But to Paul, this prospect, not only of receiving the resurrection body, but of living in a way that pleases God and doing good deeds that lead to a reward from him, is a motivator for not losing heart and keeping on doing gospel ministry. He loves Jesus, he lives to please Jesus, and he lives by the promises of Jesus according to the possibilities Jesus has laid before him. Oh, friends, don't you want to live a life like that? Like Paul. Don't we hate how easily we are distracted from godly goals like this? We make it our goals to plump up the pillows of our own comfort. or We don't even take time to think about or fix our eyes on eternity much because we can barely lift our eyes up from our phones. We don't tell people we know about Jesus because we selfishly enjoy their company in the here and now rather than worrying about their eternal state in the then and there. All because... I guess we live to please ourselves and we're more ambitious for this life than the next. To be pleased and satisfied in this body rather than the body to come. Let's learn the lesson of this passage and let's help each other live it out. Because this passage says you'll not lose heart in doing gospel work when you live with an eternal perspective. And you'll maintain that right perspective when you fix your eyes on the life to come and live to please God today.
Let's make that our prayer just now. Let's pray together.